don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to episode two of our new series of Second Captain Saturday, the show that invites esteemed guests from around the world to appear on Irish radio and reveal the grisly details of their own sporting career, all in the name of trying to become Second Captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hi, Kieran. Hey, Owen. How's it going? It's going okay. It sounds like a pretty farcical premise when I hear <laughs> myself does. say it out loud, but that's the show we've committed to, so let, we might as well deliver. On we go. The author Richard Ford set an intimidating standard in episode one. Responding to that challenge today is somebody where so excited to talk to she's a playwright broadcaster huge boxing fan she's written loads about the sport and contributed to many boxing documentaries over the years and she's nothing short of a national hero here in Ireland after she delivered some home truths to the Brits on Question Time a couple of years back Bonnie Greer is on with us today Murph a reminder please about the high bar set by Richard Ford last week I could have been a contender I could have been somebody After week one, Richard Ford leads with 85 points, but um, on he is hungry for more. He actually emailed me again during the week. Oh, wow. I, have, I have it here somewhere. How yes, well here it is. was this one? Uh, Christina, that's his wife, uh, to whom every one of his extraordinary books is dedicated. Yeah. Christina told me today that my score ought to be raised, since yesterday I caught a 28, 28-inch striped bass in the ocean here where we live. She believes that's enough for a better score. I leave it to you. <laughs> I leave it to you. That's some of the most polite jury intimidation I've ever heard. Oh yeah, that's passive aggressive, if any. If uh, ever heard it. I am. I'm holding strong. Maybe the 28-inch uh, striped bass could be a tiebreaker in any potential draw game situation later in the year. By the way, Fintan O'Toole, another thorn in the side of Brexit Britain, scored 60 points in season one of this show, which was reasonably terrible. But Bonnie now knows what's required. Okay, I, I like it. I like it. That's what Bonnie Greer is aiming for. If you need a little reminder of those home truths she delivered on the BBC, we'll play that clip for you again after we talk about Ireland's takeover of Tokyo in the early hours of the morning. I said, I must say, I didn't go through the nightmare if I set the alarm for 6am, got mm. up and crammed it all in into the space of about an hour and a half before the rest of the Just house fast got forwarded, up. Just fast forwarded all of the non-Irish content. Yeah, there was, it, was, it was all Irish. It was all Irish, which made it feel even more dramatic when the Irish athletes started dominating their events and laying down a marker as medal contenders. This mm. was... There was like a golden hour, there was, was there? A, I'm going to call it a golden hour. I mean, there was no gold <laughs> one yet because it was too early. It was well, all heats listen, and so on. But it's with, the first chapter of a beautiful story. R- Reese McLennan nailed his pommel horse routine in the gymnastics going through in first place. And yes, I am now a pommel horse yeah, expert. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the, You've been sounding off all morning. Paul Donovan, Olympic silver medalist from Rio, crushed his opponents in the heats of the rowing with his partner, Fintan McCarthy. And Kurt Walker was the first Irish fighter in the ring. He beat his Spanish opponent in a bit of a thriller. Uh, now he has to fight the world champion next, unfortunately. Mm. But as Walker said himself afterwards, he's got two arms and two legs just like me, which is what I want to hear. So what I'm saying here is, Murph, believe the hype. We're going I to take know. home a sack full of medals. I have to say, I was, I'm pretty hyped uh, myself after that. But, mm. I mean, I didn't do that. I set the alarm for something a little later than 6 a.m., <laughs> got on the Team Ireland and the Orte Esport Twitter accounts, decided what I absolutely needed to hunt down mm. online and took it from there. All of the methods are good mm. on as long as you're, you know, spending eight to ten hours of your day watching the Also, it should probably be said, some of those Irish athletes, they didn't necessarily do well. You know, there were one or two first round defeats and um, 
last place in the heats, but that, that doesn't fit my narrative. Yeah, so listen, I'm worried about you that. Know, for I, I don't think we need to we need to worry about that. On just celebrate the wins and try and forget the losses. We still have a big one to come today. History being made as the Irish women's hockey team World Cup finalists three years ago appear at the Olympic Games for the first time ever. They're just a few minutes away from getting started against South Africa. We're going to keep you up to date with that one throughout the hour. I'm telling you, my excitement levels are pretty high, Murph, because. We did win a silver medal at the World Cup. We yeah. are not favourites to win a medal in this one, but we weren't that time either. And we got I think we got off to a win against the USA in the first World Cup game and yep. just took it from there. And you know, I think the um I think the the, the method of, of victory in the World Cup, uh, we can absolutely repeat that, which is squeak into the quarterfinals uh, and then just rely on our unbelievable goalkeeper, Aisha McFerrin, to dominate yeah. the opposition in the penalty shootouts. Get into the knockouts, get some penalties. Save some penalties and get through from that <laughs> way. So that's, that's the way we're gonna, I'll tell you what, while we can't get Jackie, I'll give you a little rattle of what Bonnie Greer had to say. In fact, the Irish hockey team could do with this because they are playing Team GB. They're playing mm. Great Britain later on in the tournament. They're playing South Africa first up today. Great Britain later on. And if they're looking for a motivational video for that one, then look no further than our guest today, Bonnie Greer, and her appearance on BBC's Question Time. This was in October 2019, speaking about the UK's plans at the time to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. And it was about just where Ireland fit into all that. Go get him, Bonnie. Oftentimes I hear people talking about Ireland as if this country owns Ireland. Ireland owes this country nothing. Uh, Ireland owes this country no concessions. It owes it no quarter. It owes it nothing. The third thing that, um, the third thing that I would add too is that the Good Friday Agreement, in spite of its rather benign uh, name, the Good Friday Agreement is a truce. And it's a truce because the United States of America and the EU sat down with this country to make it happen. We have to be much more serious about this. And the third thing I want to say is that the United States is Irish. And if anybody thinks that they're going to get a deal through and have a relationship, a trade relationship with the United States Absolutely. that shafts Ireland, you got another thing coming. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm from, I'm from Chicago. Uh, that's where I was born. And you know what we do on St. Patrick's Day? We dye the river green. People are very serious about Ireland and the United States. Don't mess with it. Don't make it look bad. That should be our national tagline. <laughs> Don't mess with us. Don't make us look bad. By the way, more than 18 months later, still no US-UK trade deal. And there are reports that the US aren't too happy with the latest shenanigans in the UK mm. about the Northern Irish Protocol. So Bonnie was right. In Bonnie, we in trust. Bonnie, we trust. We yeah. will try to get back over to Tokyo a little bit later on in the programme there. About to get started in the next couple of minutes. You can text us on 51551. Tweet at Second Captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Ireland's Bonnie Greer. Ireland's Bonnie Greer. Coming up after a little bit of Lisa Hannigan. kind of beautiful music that helped Lisa Hannigan get herself onto a new collection of stamps from Unpussed last week believe it or not mm. 
Stamp worthy. That's a stamp worthy song, right? <laughs> that there, is right? a that is a stamp worthy song. All right, that one is called Undertow. Brilliant stuff. Our guest today on Second Captain Saturday has been living in the UK for more than thirty years, having grown up in Chicago. She's an award winning playwright, author, critic, and broadcaster. She's also been awarded an OBE, has served as deputy chair of the British Museum, Chancellor of Kingston University, and she's a regular on the big British current affairs shows like Newsnight and Question Time. In fact, it was on Question Time that she became a national hero here in Ireland. Bonnie Greer, welcome to the show (laughs) thank you thank you we had to give that clip another run out earlier on we've played it for our listeners here did you realize at that time that on top of your american passport and your british citizenship you were about to become an an honorary irish woman listen i'm 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 ready for it to happen i'm ready for it to happen i didn't even know we even made me say all those things um and when i finished (laughs) i remember uh coming off stage and I think one of the crew was Irish and his face, he was just beaming. Like, and I, you know, I just because the audience didn't react, really. So I didn't know what was going on. How big was the reaction then? Why do you think people reacted like that at that time? Well, you know, I got I got I heard from people who lived in who live in L.A., who I haven't heard from in a long time, who are. Irish uh, nationality. They live in LA. They heard about it by the time I got home. (laughs) And one woman called me and said her husband just burst into tears. And I thought, well, what did I say? So I, I just, um, obviously something happened on the show or something triggered me to make me think, you know, you guys, you people in this audience and the whole country, I'm talking about the United Kingdom, talk as if Ireland is their child or something. I just thought this is crazy. And they don't, um, most British people don't really know the visceral visceral connection that Americans um, feel about Ireland. And even, it doesn't even matter what ethnicity you are. And it's just a big emotional you know, thing for Americans and, uh, and, you know, even people on the right, they'll say, if you want to get the right and the left together, you know, (laughs) denigrate Ireland. And that's one way you can do it. And and now with Joe Biden, who is an unabashed uh, uh, Irishman and and recites uh, Yates, uh, the uprising, you know, I mean, look, Mm -hmm. Britain should be understand at a very deep level that that Ireland is not going to suffer from all of the things that are going on right now. Has that changed at all in the time since then? Has Do you feel that the British people's understanding of that and, and also just of the complexity of Ireland's position has changed at all? Has it gotten any better or worse? No, they haven't understood it because they don't have a prime minister who wants to face it. His party uh, is invested in Brexit and so anything else is is secondary to it. So, no, they really haven't. I mean, I'm not sure that it's in in particularly England's, I guess, sense of itself to be invested in understanding very much about the Republic at all. Yeah, you came. It's not a good news story for them. No, <laughs> no, I think that's fair <laughs> to say. Yeah, uh, you came over to Ireland on the back of all that, didn't you? Yes, I did. I, I, I mean, I was invited over and and met a lot of people, and you know, even people in the in the airport on the way over from on the on the London end were talking to me. It was just the, it's it's amazing, and and I um, I'm very I'm very grateful. I met the ambassador here, and and just really really grateful to 
feel that I that on some level I'm a power, part of Ireland, and I, I'm really happy to be honest with you that I said what I said because I I think uh, it needed it needs to be said over and over again that 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 Ireland owes the UK nothing and it it owes it you know no deference or anything else and the and the UK should understand that. You have, you know, should probably be pointed out, Bonnie, that you're not some sort of Britain basher. You know, you you live in the country, you live in the yes. UK, you have been there for a long time. I mean, you've got an OBE for crying out loud. So yes. uh, what is your relationship like with your adopted country now? Is it is it largely still fondness for, I don't want to say the life that it's given you, because you, you, you're the one who's gone over and done it there. But are you fond of, of where you're living? You know, I, 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 this is a great country and, and it's, its testament is that I was deputy head, uh, a deputy chair of the British Museum. I mean, this is a British museum and they have a an African-American woman uh, from the South Side of Chicago in a position like that. And I'm still working with the museum. And, and that's the side of Britishness that's powerful. Uh, that is a lesson to the world. I mean, when Britain pulled out of the EU, I know people who work for the EU institutions who just literally cried because Britain brought a lot of issues to the table that a lot of European nations, not Ireland, but other European nations just weren't facing. And Britain brought those to the table, always did consistently uh, in the committees and so forth. And just the sort of British cool in a way, in the sense that uh, British people can stand up under fire. I mean, it, it's all, it's in the culture. And to me, it's heartbreaking to see uh, the nation being sort of sawed off from the rest of the world because the world, Europe needs Britain right now. and Britain needs Europe right now. And it's just a sad thing to see uh, because of ideologues who have sort of talked the country into believing that this break is something that's going to benefit it. The nation's already hurting, and it's just sad. I, it's um, it's a great country. It, it is welcoming. It is warm. There are just elements in it, like everywhere else, that are negative. And like in my native country, America, I mean, that place is on the edge. You know, I can't say that America is a bad place. It isn't. But there's stuff dug into America, like there's stuff dug into Britain, like there's stuff dug into Ireland. There's certain people can emerge up and make visible and make people react to and make pe- other people think, well, that's the country. It isn't the country. So, yeah, I, I, I love this country. And, and if I criticize it, it's from that space. Your family connection to Britain goes back to your dad. He was stationed there during World War II, I believe. My father was here uh, as a part of the preparation for D-Day. He was part of the transport uh, troops because African-Americans weren't armed routinely in the war, if you can imagine, because the Army, U.S. Army was segregated uh, until 1948. He turned 20 years old uh, the day after the landing, D-Day. So he's a young guy. But he always remembered the country because what he saw from his point of view, he grew up in rural Mississippi in in deep segregation. What he saw um, were men and women of African descent walking around. And these are people who were from the Caribbean and Africa, the old empire, now the Commonwealth, who were walking around as far as he could tell in relative freedom. So 
white GIs had to be warned. You know, you might walk into a bar and see a black GI with a white woman. Don't lose it because that is you're in another country. That's the kind of stuff, you know, that people were told. So the English would invite the GIs home for Christmas supper, you know, share their meager meal with with uh, with the GIs and they were told not to let the African American men into their homes and they, you know, English people, the Welsh, the Scots, they defied them and and gave um a Christmas meal to people like my dad. So, uh but my father really loved Britain and he really loved Europe and uh, would have loved to have been in Ireland if he'd had a chance. So for you then, growing up in Chicago, was race and racism something you had to think about and confront early on? Well, my father uh, worked in a suburb, uh, a white suburb at night on an assembly line making cans six nights a week because, you know, night work paid more money. And uh, the suburb was white, working class. And the Irish and Polish communities and the African-American communities have been in conflict, working class communities have been in conflict for a hundred years because they're fighting over the same pie, basically the same low wages, the same conditions. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, Irish Americans have been on the other side of this struggle, although individuals have not and have, have been quite outstanding. The community in terms of the working class community is what supports Donald Trump. Uh, and have have been adversaries to African-Americans all the way back to the Civil War when they uh, had a revolt in New York uh, against being drafted into the Civil War. I think this was in 1864. And their retaliation was to go around lynching Black people in New York City, hanging them from lampposts. So the Irish-American story and the African-American story is pretty fraught. But like I say, within that story are incredible individuals. And, and my town, Chicago, I, I grew up in, in the 50s and the 60s, um, was run by the Irish. And really, um, everywhere you would go, you'd see uh, the mayor, Richard J. Daly's name, Mayor Daly. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that his first name wasn't Mayor. <laughs> and and really, the, you know, the St. Patrick's Day parade was like the Kremlin March past. I mean, you, it was enormous. It was incredible. It's changed now. And everybody takes part in it with a lot of pride and fun. But back when I was a kid, it was it was like a Kremlin march past. I mean, it was it 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 showed the power. Well, yeah, I was going to say, was it a flexing of of muscle nearly? Total you know, amongst power. the the politics power. and and police yeah. force and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, it was about power. And um, when JFK was nominated, he was the first president that I remember. I mean, it was back in the day when people were seriously saying. Um, who was he going to take his ultimate marching orders from the Vatican or or the Congress? Uh, I mean, this was a serious conversation in 1960. Um, Chicago actually made him president because of that machine. It was called the machine, and it delivered votes to the Democratic Party under this particular mayor. Now we have an African-American woman uh, who is mayor. Lori Lightfoot, she's LGBTQI, and she's 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 a mother, and she's she's a hard fighting 
wonderful person in the tradition and and Irish Chicago Irish voted for her so you know these are different times but but it, these are scars that go deep now in the show Bonnie we like to find out how sport influences the lives of our guests and we mentioned how boxing seems to have influenced you quite a bit talk to us about the part it played in your house growing up in Chicago I've read that the big fight nights were a bit of a mainstay on TV for you Saturday night you know my dad was working on Saturday night and there was no um way to 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 record it or anything if you had a, a rare night off or on sunday yeah it was watching fights um and of course seeing black men in the ring at, in the era of the civil rights movement which is when i i came of age and i grew up uh was a real strong symbol for us to see uh muhammad ali who did the whole journey from you know, being an Olympic icon to becoming a uh, a symbol of the civil rights movement, then joining the Nation of Islam, which was out of Chicago. And so he was there a lot. And I think Ali came into my consciousness maybe about 65, maybe even later than that, 68. Uh, because the Vietnam War, my friends, older friends from high school were drafted and sent off. My contemporaries were fighting to not be in the war. And Ali refused to uh, go over. And he said they were the wrong people that he should be fighting. And that was really what we were saying too. So he became a hero. He was out there as a politician and an activist. And that's where we were too. So he was important in that sense. He was on all the talk shows. He was, he was articulate. He knew what he was saying. So, so yeah, he, he and boxing became a huge symbol for my generation, especially. So was he totally different to anything that had come before? Not, not just that it was, it, it was a sports person who was uh, becoming such an important societal figure, but just in terms of the way he went about his business, did he represent something that maybe hadn't been there for, particularly for people of your age, that you couldn't necessarily identify with from, from other civil rights leaders and activists? Well, you know, our parents and our older brothers and sisters were the turn the other cheek generation. They practiced um, peaceful nonviolence resistance, Satyagraha, based on what Gandhi uh, used to get independence from Britain. Don't fight back. And and that worked up to a point. But my generation didn't want to do that anymore. We refused. And so what was so great about Ali was that he talked back. He'd be on TV. And uh, especially with Howard Cosell, the, the late great sportscaster, I mean, they would, you know, Howard Cosell would, would, would say something and he just hit back. And then, of course, this articulateness, he was he was beautiful to look at. Uh, he had a beautiful soul, as far as we knew. He was young and he talked like we felt. And that's why he, he mattered. Uh, I suppose Ali is an extreme example, but you've said in the past that boxing for black fighters was always a metaphor for something more. What is that something more that you think black fighters are fighting for? I, I think the fighting became a metaphor for independence. The fighting became a metaphor for resistance. The fighting became a metaphor for individual um, agency. because in an age where in the demonstrations in everyday life, we were as a people lumped together and judged. In the ring, you were yourself at the end of the day. And people would look at you 
and they saw you. They had to see you. You weren't Black people. You weren't African-American people. You weren't Negroes. You weren't colored people or whatever. You were you. And the individual Black person, the individual Black man, um, and and eventually woman, um, stand as a person. And I think, you know, as I'm talking to you, I think that is that's what it is, because we were enslaved people. We were considered three quarters of a human being. We were always herded together. We were kept in ghettos. We were judged collectively. We were killed collectively. And so to see one individual stand in a ring in, a, in the middle of a crowd and use their individual intelligence, prowess, gifts to defeat someone really through a very cruel sport actually give us a kind of agency that you needed to keep going. Yeah, it's really well put, Bonnie. Listen, there's loads more we want to talk about, want to ask you about. Lots more from Bonnie Greer coming up after the break. And we're going across to Tokyo where it's going well so far for the Irish hockey team. Second cap and first cap and whatever. Yeah, you're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen and Murph today. Our guest has been amazing so far. More to come from Bonnie Greer in just a second. But the Irish women's hockey team is creating history at the moment, playing its first ever match at the Olympics as we speak against South Africa. Jackie Hurley is there watching them. And I think it's so far so good, Jackie. Yeah, definitely is, Owen. Uh, good to chat to you. Uh, I think Ireland were living a little bit dangerously before they got that goal from Roisin Upton on nine minutes, but since then they've been absolutely in control. I think for a lot of them, you could see them. I don't know if you watched them singing the anthem, but they absolutely belted out Aaron Naveen. With the vigour that you have seen the French and Italians giving their anthem over the last couple of years, it's been um, a dream come true for a lot of these players. I think they've wanted to go to the Olympic Games since they were children, and to finally see them getting that dream come true tonight, it's uh, definitely been a special one for them. I think this game of all of them is the one that they really, really, really want to win because if you think about the other teams that they have in their group, this to them is their best chance of getting a win on the board. Only four teams will come out of their group and in their group they've got the world number ones in the Netherlands, they've got the Olympic champions in Great Britain, they've got the uh, Rio bronze medalists, Germany in their group as well. So Ireland will definitely know that this is the game that they're targeting to win because there's tougher games coming. They've got five games in eight days. So uh, they're laying down a good marker here. It's definitely so far so good. Yeah, and I think we're hearing a little bit of the conversation between referees at the moment in the background there. Jackie, amazing to hear that our, our anthems game is so strong. I'm delighted about that. Uh, if we do get through this one, then you said how hard the other games are coming up. I mean, is it too much to hope that we might start repeating the heroics of the World Cup three years ago? Well, in fairness, what happens is once the four get out of the group, you're into the quarterfinals. And then as we've seen with this team, tournament hockey can bring about anything, you know. So I think this Irish team have always been very good about being honest about where they are. In the run-up to that World Cup in 2018, they were very much under the radar. They still feel like they're under the radar now. You know, they're ranked ninth in the world. There's a lot of teams ranked ahead of them. So they're still very much underdogs at this tournament. But the one thing that has changed is that the structures are now in place. They've got everything that they've wanted in the last couple of years in terms of their preparation has been you know much much better than it has been for major tournaments so far and look they will say themselves they're here to play they're not just here to make up the numbers cliched as that sounds but they really really want to go far in this tournament quarterfinals is where it starts for them and then after that look there's a dream Owen. i think we all really enjoyed that world cup momentum a couple of years ago and if they could get something moving who knows brilliant jackie great stuff we'll see if we can get through the rest of this game first one nil to ireland at the moment we have 
been talking to Bonnie Greer about issues of identity and race when it comes to boxers. What about issues, Bonnie, of identity playing football for England at the moment? I mean, this is so loaded, really. The big narrative coming into Euro 2020 was how they were getting booed for taking the knee. The country then starts loving them when they start winning. But as soon as they lose and Rashford and Saka and Jaden Sancho miss their penalties, they start getting racially abused. How do you reflect on that whole few weeks around the English football team? Um, this country, like Ireland, like every other country in the world, has its racist elements. That's number one. Number two, we've all been in lockdown, uh, you know, for a year. People are crazy. I mean, the day of that game, and I live in the West End of London, people were in the streets at one o'clock in the afternoon, drinking themselves uh, into oblivion and singing that song they sing. And, and you know, I just thought, oh, my goodness. Um <laughs> We don't have the leadership in the country to say to these people, you don't racially abuse uh, a human being because they didn't take a penalty, okay? Number one, that's not British. That's not we, what we do. If you do it, you're not part of us. I mean, Garrett Southgate said it. Uh, you ain't part of us. We don't want you as, as, as to support us. We don't want you. Um, every black person I know who supports football told me uh, the day before, if something happens, it's going to be the black players are going to get it. Um, these guys are very young, uh, the ones who took the penalty, and, and they're going to go forward and they're going to have great lives. But I was outraged because I thought these, these are young people and they did their best. And this, you know, penalty shootouts are crazy anyway. Uh, for people to come down on them like that, and for the Home Secretary, who's a woman of color herself, to not make a huge deal out of this and still be investigating where all this came from. Some people say it was from abroad. We don't know. But there were homegrown elements. She has to set an example that that is not what we do. But as far as I know, she hasn't really done it. And if she has, she hasn't done it with enough vigor. She's a woman of color herself, Pretty Patel. Her parents were had to leave their native country be, uh, because they were being persecuted because of their ethnicity. Why in the world isn't she on this right now and continuously that this isn't going to set? I mean, she was the one who's, who called taking a knee is gesture politics. So you got some guy who's like really, really pissed off. Uh, and, and what's he gonna take it out on? He's gonna take it out on these three guys. And what's he gonna use? He's gonna be a racist about it. Um, and he needs to be dissuaded. Most people are not racist. The real racist are the people you never hear anything racist from. The other people, they need to be pulled up and they need to be schooled. And that's what needs to happen at the top. And we don't have the leadership here in this country. We have a prime minister who's compared uh, uh, Muslim women to letterboxes. It, it, you know, it, it, it's retrograde, it's dangerous, and it's dangerous for everybody. And so I see this as a very deep existential crisis in this country along with the crisis of manhood that needs to be addressed. I mean, ASAP, particularly uh, while this, this horrible uh, virus has us in its grip. 
for all its faults, you outlined earlier that you still love the country like your dad did before you. What did he make of your decision to move there, to make a life in England? He came to visit me in 94 uh, for the 50th anniversary of the landing as the last time I saw him alive. And uh, we were walking across uh, Westminster Bridge and he loved the fact that the the, the clock's name is Big Ben. He loved that, his name was Ben. <laughs> and um, we were walking across and he told me, um, my husband who's white English and his friends took him to the pub. And my dad said, nobody looked up. He said, nobody looked at us when we walked in, nobody. He said, they, David walked in with with me and had his arm around me and my they were all, everybody was just talking and David's friends were with us said nobody in that pub looked up and he said when people ask me why you moved here I now can tell them it's a beautiful moment it was Bonnie, as you know, we're going to rank your sporting life in just a minute. Murph is feverishly working away on a system there in the background. But before we get onto your own personal highlight, can you talk to us about what it is that draws you to boxing? Um, it, it, it has a great kind of nobility and it has great metaphor, especially for ethnic minorities and Irish Americans too. I mean, it has a great metaphor and uh, and I, I like seeing the, his, the stories of boxing and watching boxing because... Again, the object is not to get hit and to hit. And to see, particularly someone in the heavyweight division, I mean, these guys are huge, to be able to move like Ali did as beautifully and gracefully as he did is a great thing to see. I believe you train yourself, you train in boxing. Are you still training today? Yes. I mean, I haven't in a year because the gyms have been closed, but I can't wait to get back. Get back to the heavy bag you and train. It. I can't wait. Yeah, I love it. You said earlier that you only really understood boxing when you started doing it yourself. Was that at a young age or was it was it later in life? It was later. Oh, yeah, later. I mean, the time when you should probably be doing it. Um, I, I didn't I didn't really get it. Uh, well, I didn't understand it until I was in my 30s. And then I, I knew how to do it. And I thought, um uh, it's a good way to exercise is you get to punch the bag, you have to do training, you have to do the rope, everything. And so it was. it's a good sort of overall fitness thing. It's good for cardiovascular. It's good for your reflexes. It's good for all of those things. Um, it, it, it is a cruel sport. And I'm not, you know, I'm not reveling in it. I'm not saying it, it's a good thing. The training around it is a good thing. The training around it is beautiful. Some of the metaphors of it is is very important. Ali was supremely important for me growing up, but it isn't like football. It isn't like uh, rugby. It isn't like any of the other sports, even Formula One, because its object its object is to stop another human being. So I'm not saying, and I, it's really important, I'm not saying that it's a great sport in itself, but it has its metaphors, and the metaphors are important. If you can separate out this cruel sport and see the nobility of the metaphors, the nobility of even the courage of getting in a ring in front of a lot of people facing another human being, then I think it's a worthy sport at the end of the day. 
Okay, last one then, Bonnie, before we rank your sporting life. Have you got a highlight for us from your own boxing, sporting career, boxing or otherwise? Yeah, it was in the gym when I was with my trainer, who's like 30-something years younger than me and a foot taller. And I took him down because he wasn't paying attention. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, of course, I, I got all sort of mumsy and fluttery and everything and went, oh my God. But I was feeling good inside. So that, that was good. <laughs> Beautiful. That could be. You, you boxed on stage as well, once I heard. Did I? I have, funny? Yes, 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 in a play. Yes. Ah. That's how and I learned about it. All oh, right. Okay. So you secured the victory on stage, at least. Yeah, I did. But in the gym, I, I, uh, I used one of his, I used his lessons. And he just, for a moment, he lost his attention. And I took him down. <laughs> and he uh he was fine because he's a big strong guy he was fine but his face and you know like i said i got all fluttery and go oh my god i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and he just smiled and i thought i smiled too that was a good t- that was a good moment i love it i love it okay we've got that nailed down then murph richard ford has a bit to worry about i think here could you please rank <laughs> let's rank this sporting life of bonnie Greer. you don't understand i could have had class don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. It feels almost churlish to now rank your all-time sports highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then present you with a score out of 100. But unfortunately, Bonnie, I am a deeply churlish man, and I do need to tell you just where you stand on our greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. So you may or most likely may not be interested to hear that another boxing fan, previous guest of ours, was Academy Award-nominated director Lenny Abrahamson. Well, he held the table for the pool table for one memorable night in San Francisco in the 1990s. Memorable to Lenny, that is. That got him 70 points out of 100. Our last BBC stalwart was World Affairs editor John Simpson. He wasn't into boxing, but he did get boxed in the face by former British Prime Minister Harold Wilson, and he could play a bit of cricket, so that got him 80 points. 85 is this season's number to beat. That's Richard Ford's from last week, just FYI. So your dedication to continuing your boxing education from, from the 1980s right through to today marks you as an early adapter, a pioneer in pugilism. So there's really only one sports person who matches up to your achievements in the ring, and that's Ireland's Olympic gold medal winning undisputed world champ ring magazine pound for pound best boxer in the world katie taylor there is literally no higher compliment in this country bonnie than being compared to katie taylor i will never forget this (laughs) (laughs) points points added for your love of marcus rashford sancho and saka add for that image of you boxing on stage like the mighty the beautiful james earl jones in the great white hope in the 1960s and 1970s on uh, Broadway points deducted however for that cheap shot on your unsuspecting coach it's just not done <laughs> it's most un like behaviour so you've given me so much to think about here uh, I'm just adding the last few parameters to the equation and yes yes I am happy to say that you have scored 71 points Bonnie Greer this has been your sporting oh, life Bonnie round of applause please for Bonnie Greer thank you
This is the day by the the as the name of that tune. And yeah, yes, I did have to practice that in advance and still didn't quite pull it off. It's almost impossible. It's like uh, they were trying to troll Irish people with the name of that song and the name of the band there. Yeah, yeah. I think you did reasonably well there, Owen. Amazing stuff from Bonnie Greer there. I think, judging by the text we're getting in, she has cemented her status as an Irish hero. Cruel on New York Park, I think only to give her 71 points. But we're going to go back over to... the algorithm. I keep telling you, it's the algorithm. We are going to go back over to Tokyo now the women's hockey team is playing in its first ever Olympic match last we heard they were 1-0 up what's the latest Jackie? Yeah, halftime here, lads, and it is 1-0, courtesy of that Roisin Upton goal that you heard of a little bit earlier on from that penalty corner. Incidentally, obviously, the same woman who scored that penalty stroke that sent Ireland to these Olympic Games has scored what is Ireland's first ever goal in an Olympics there, just walking out, which I'm sure they'll feel pretty confident about that first half. They did have a couple of other chances. Naomi Carroll hit the post. They'd had a couple of other chances from penalty corners. The one thing from an Irish point of view is they just need to be a little bit more careful at the back. They've let South Africa in for a couple of chances. One just a few moments there before halftime. Flash right across Aisha McFerrin's goal. Very lucky that there wasn't somebody on the end of it. Ireland living a little bit dangerously at times, but for the moment, uh, they are leading here. And it does very much look like if they get a couple more chances, they're definitely going to put one of them away. They just need to be careful that they don't let one go at the back because, as we said, this is a game that Ireland absolutely need to be winning if they're going to get out of this pool and reach the quarterfinals. Busy day for you, Jackie. I saw you at the rowing earlier on. Being kept on your toes, as always, by the O'Donovans, Paul O'Donovan in this case, when you asked him, uh, any any message for anybody, anybody at home? And he says, yeah, go to bed. I don't know what you're doing up watching me, but that's the kind of stuff. But he was immense in the in the water as always and good, and good value in the interview. Uh, I'll tell you what, you know what? He is an absolute superstar. And the reality is we got him in the mix zone. We were the only people who got him. There was requests in from about 14 stations looking for him. And I'm not joking because since Rio, Paul O'Donovan and Gary, in fairness, have become global superstars. And Fintan McCarthy is not afraid to have the crack either. Like they're very much all cut from the same cloth. They like to come in and be real. And, you know, when he said go to bed, I was there, Paul, come here. People, we're trying to get people to watch the live coverage during the night. And he just, you know, they had a great line about cycling in the shower and all this kind of thing as well. And look, I mean, I think they get it as well, that like half the crack is bringing people to rowing and enjoying it. And look, I I have to say, I I love going down there and just watching them all in action because the rowers are, they're great characters and they're brilliant people to be around. Brilliant stuff, Jackie. We leave it there. You'll hear more from Jackie, obviously, right through Saturday Sport Halftime as we're hearing it. Good stuff so far for... The Irish hockey team. I kind of, I'm, I'm falling for it, Murph. I'm already falling for these Olympic games. We mentioned at the top of the show that the rowers had gone well. There was some good stuff from Reese McLennan in the gymnastics. He finished top of his heat. Um, also a heartbreaking interview with Jack Woolley who missed out in the taekwondo. So already mm. it's like, like today was a microcosm of it was. what the Olympics is all about. It was about. just a pure distillation of, <laughs> of the Olympics yeah. fever, you know, and and like so, so many times uh, you can get a bit cynical about them, but the first the first 24 hours of it have been have been brilliant. That's all from us for now. We'll be back next week at one o'clock. Check us out during the week at secondcaptains.com for independent member-led podcasts that also include shows like the Players Chair with Richie Sadler and international series like Where Is George Gibney? Thanks to Killian down on research Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing big thanks to Mark Dwyer on sound thank you Kieran. thank you Owen thanks so much for listening most importantly we'll catch you soon <laughs>